Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Yes Sir Hater. As usual, my name is Mark and I am with... Dennis, now and... in England for a week. <laughs> uh, maybe you need to set the context a little bit then. What's, uh, what's the difference from the uh, times that we have been recording when you're in uh, Jersey and when you're in England? I think for some people, they may not know the difference. Okay, the times are the same. It's just that the Jersey is part of the Channel Islands, which is a small group of islands off of France uh, that are actually self-governing. They are part of the UK, but they have their own parliament and currency, even though it's sterling, it's, it's Jersey sterling. So it's a kind of interesting relationship. But can you use the uh, Jersey sterling pound in England? Uh, you, in fact, funny enough, you can use the English pound in Jersey, but not the Jersey pound generally in England. Uh, right. But you can go in the bank and change it, but not many people would take it otherwise. <laughs> right. So that's an interesting fun fact for yeah. the week. Yeah. How has your week been? Yeah, it's been quite good. I've been in England all week. So I've visited a friend from school who I've only seen about three times in the last 30 years. And mm. now I'm in Ealing with one of my daughters and a partner and my other one's coming down tomorrow. So that's going to be nice. And guess what? The weather is forecasted to be about 18 degrees today and sunny, which <laughs> means I will probably go in the garden this afternoon and risk uh, um, taking my shirt off. <laughs> cool. So, is um, this part of the is this part of the Easter festivities, or is it somebody's birthday, or no, no? It's happening? just to, to be honest about it. It's just that um, I was free from any kind of physical commitments this week, um, right. so I'm just working online basically, um, right. and I do that anywhere. Right. Okay. Cool. The wonders of technology. So, anyway, let's jump into today's topic. Uh, today we're gonna do. Uh, a little bit uh, on something that is somewhat of your favorite pet topic, uh, and let me just set the context for everyone. Um, I was doing some reading up because we were preparing for some training for new lecturers, but we needed to talk a little bit about learning models. So there's constructivism, there's behaviorism, uh, there's cognitivism. And then mm -hmm. now there's social learning. So let's do this one by one. Uh, can you just give us a quick insight to the idea of what each learning model is in terms of the concepts? So let's start with, uh, I know your favorite one, which is constructivism. And I say that with uh, a bit of uh, uh, pulling your legs because, uh, a bit of pulling your legs because uh, I know you don't really like it. So can you tell us a little bit about what is constructivism then? Okay, in fact, when I say I don't like it, um, <laughs> you're probably right in certain senses because it's been used as a general theory of education and learning. And, you know, I've gone into schools and when I spoke to principals, and I've said to them, what is your underpinning pedagogic framework? Right. And they said, oh, well, we're constructivists. It sounds kind of a bit glam. Um, in the 19... Yeah, I think 1970s, sociology had a, a kind of branch of sociology called ethnomethodology. 
it stemmed from the uh, writings of old Garfinkel. The book was called Studies in Ethnomethodology. And it became one of these books that become more famous for the fact that nobody could ever read and understand it. It was one of those books <laughs> like, if you, if you could say I understood ethnomethodology, um, people would look at you as, as though you were some super intellectual. It made John Paul Sartre's um, main philosophical book, Being and Nothingness, seem like the Beano. Right. Anyway, so constructivism basically is not a theory of learning. People sometimes think it is. Mm. It's essentially a combination of two strands of um, philosophy. One of those strands is called phenomenology. The major writer there, I'm just posing here because I've read all this stuff. I'm a bit of a nerd sometimes, Mark. That's why I support Tom. Only uh, sometimes. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, Only yeah. sometimes, yeah. yeah. Anyway, Alfred Schutz wrote um, perhaps the definitive text on phenomenology. The basic premise is this, is that whilst there is an objective world out there, it's a bit like the X-Files, the truth is out there, and it is. So there is an external world. The only thing is we perceive that external world through our own senses. And what we know is that there are many filters to reality, our belief systems, our perceptual systems, the way our memory works and way our brain works, etc. So whilst we experience an external reality, it is subjective. And that's why me and you, if we were watching Spurs play Manchester United, uh, we won't mention the result last night. Um, if we're watching <laughs> that game, 50-50 um, um, tackles, which would be objective, they're occurring on the field, we might interpret them differently. You might see a Tottenham tackle as, look at that nasty foul. And I look at it and think, wow, what a lovely committed tackle. So yep. what, what, can, you know, what phenomenology is about is that fact that Whilst we all have this common brain apparatus, more or less, our experiences, our wiring, et cetera, et cetera, leads to different interpretations of reality. And that's why we have different belief systems about things, et cetera, et cetera. So that is perfectly valid. That's true to some extent. However, I would still take issue with phenomenology and say that um, whilst, for example, we all may grieve, you know, if, if a loved one dies, we, we, we might have different ways of grieving in terms of burial rites. Generally speaking, in the world, and we see this, you know, tragically around the world today as we see people being killed in wars and terrorism, most people, when their loved ones get killed, are not actually pleased about it. Right. In the, so, you know, you can argue there are universal needs as well. Self-determination uh, uh, self theory, Desi and Ryan, talks about things like autonomy and relatedness and mastery, competence, being universal needs. And I tend to agree with that. So the, the one view is that things are very, very subjective. Uh, there's another view coming, coming from traditional art science you know the idea is that there are laws of physics and they could be absolute across the universe now we know in social science that in the sense that there are no laws in social science there tends to be what's called heuristics or general principles for example most people if they won a million pound on the lottery would tend to be happy but it's not a law 
Whereas if you if you actually drop an heavy weight on your toe, it tends to actually land on your toe if that's the law of gravity and the law of physics. It's not going to change midway because it you know somehow it's that's not going to happen. If I spill something, it spills. It doesn't stop spilling because I don't want it to spill as it's falling off the table. So that's phenomenology now constructivism takes that premise that learners learn in their own way yes they do in the sense if i know nothing about something and i'm not motivated because of my background uh, i may not learn in the same way as somebody not learn um in comparison to someone who's got plenty of prior knowledge and is highly motivated but that's not because of brain neurology it's because of those factors so everybody learns in the same way i mean we've had we've had this discussion before i think it was roger shank who made the statement that yeah. there is no difference in learning and remember the learning styles we did an episode on it there isn't really such thing as learning styles it's not useful everybody learns in the same way and that is after taking information they connect it with what they've already got in their brain their prior learning and then they process it through thinking, and they connect that new knowledge to prior knowledge. Right? Everybody learns in the same way, but some people, if they're not motivated, they're not going to even bother to notice what they're being taught. They're not even paying attention to it, so they don't learn it. So this is a, the, the limitation, well, not just one limitation in constructivism. All it's saying is that people must learn in their own way. Well, yeah, they've got to pay attention. They've got to go through the thinking process. Uh, everybody learns in the same way. It's just that different people will have different motivational aspects to learning. And because of their prior learning, will learn at slower or quicker rates, depending on what they've got in their long-term memory system. So the reason um, I have referred to constructivism in a couple of my books as part of an educational Jurassic Park <laughs> is that it's not a... Yeah, people are using it as though it's a theory of learning, a model of education... And it's it's not. It's far from that. And the problem is, it's a very limited view of running education systems. And what it can lead to is certain people with political agendas who want to make out that all learners are unique and different and we must absolutely differentiate everything and customise it, um, which is not really viable at this point in time anyway. Um and it gets used in the, in a kind of political sense of explaining away failure as teachers not teaching to their individual learning styles and needs, rather than the fact that maybe many of these learners are not um, being properly prepared um, to learn better. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so that's uh, constructivism. What about yeah. behaviorism? Uh, but before you talk about that, I just wanted to share something funny that I came across yeah. uh, on, on social media, okay? So here's, here's, a, here's a riddle for you, uh, Dennis. Why was uh, Pavlov's hair so soft? Uh, okay, well, Pavlov was the guy who came up with classical conditioning. Mm. Why was his hair so soft? Yeah. Um, it's got to do with it's got to be do, to do with some notion of stimulus, response, and reinforcement, doesn't it? One thing of that nature. No, um, it's it's simpler than that. Go and then. What is it? Because he conditioned it. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. It is so. Yeah, it's right. Yeah, because he would do. Yeah, yeah. Condition. Okay. Uh, sure. It show. Funny enough, I was going to go out and buy some air conditioner today. Um, 
<laughs> so yeah, so let's let's give us a so let's give everyone an insight to behaviorism. We talk about Skinner and his ideas. I'm a firm believer. Uh, I really do like it, but maybe just give uh, a concise one for our listeners. What exactly yeah. is behaviorism? Okay. Yeah, yeah it, it, I, I have in many ways, uh, as, as a theory, I think it's a much more useful theory than any of the other so-called classical theories. And what Pavlov did, it was simply to, to connect two things together. In other words, like the, the dog gets fed and he conditioned the, the, the arrival of the food with a ringing of a bell, I think it was. So when the bell rung, the dog would salivate even before the food got there because the yep. dog had been conditioned to do that. Now, what um, um, behaviorism does takes it a little bit further. It's a similar thing, but you have a stimulus and you have a response and you have a reinforcement. And what that basically means is this. Let's apply a little bit to a society. Uh, I remember in the UK many, many years ago, like um, with the drink driving laws, there wasn't much punishment attached to, you know, the policeman stopping someone and say, hello, hello, hello. In the old days, they used to do that, apparently. Yeah. Have you been drinking, sir? No. And then uh, there's 15 empty cans of beer in the front seat, you know, whatever. Anyway, they get breathalyzed or whatever. That was before breathalyzation. But the point was, suddenly it become perceived, and rightly so, as a more serious offence than prior. And eventually, I remember... Um, the fine being something like £1,500 and a three-year ban. And many people who previously would take the risk and uh, and drive after they rode the limit stop doing it. So the idea is this, that you have a stimulus. The stimulus is to drive the car when you've had a drink. That gets me home. I haven't got to pay for a taxi. But then, if you get caught, um, the consequences are £1,500 fine and three-year ban, and that gets reinforced to stop you doing it. And the same thing is, like with a dog, you can kind of get a dog. I mean, when I was uh, training my dog, it liked cheese. So mm -hmm. if it did something I want, I mean, that was almost classical conditioning in some way, but the dog had learned that if he went out you know, to the garden or whatever to, to do whatever he's supposed to do in the garden, uh, he'd get a bit of cheese. Um, so that's um, operant condition. It's a stimulus, it's a response to get related, and there's a reinforcement contingency. And basically, that reinforcement contingency can be a positive thing or it can be a negative thing. So if you apply it to a school system, you have things like if the students misbehave and those um, uh, acts of deviance, like interrupting or throwing something across the classroom, results in the cane the students learn that behavioural model. So the idea is the cane, when they think, oh, I wouldn't mind messing around, whether it's a subconscious or conscious thing, they know that if they do that, they're going to get the cane. They don't like the cane, so they don't do it. Unfortunately, it can break down. When I was at school, we had a kid. His name was um, um, Harry. I won't name his second name. He might still be alive, probably not. But he actually wanted to be caned by all the teachers in the school. And there was one teacher called Mr. Wright who had picked up on this and um, said to him, look, Harry, I know you want me to cane you, but I'm not going to do it. However, if you behave all term, 
I will cane you at the end of term. And Harry would come in and say, Mr. Wright, would you like me to clean the board? He'd do his own work. And he was a bright kid and, you know, clean the board. And the last day of term, uh, Mr. Wright called him out and said, Harry, you know, you've been very good. You can have your um, dose of a cane. I think the maximum was six. And he said to Harry, how many would you like? He said, uh, Mr. Wright, can I please have six? And you could distribute them, you know, and... <clears throat> left hand, right hand, left cheek, right cheek. And he said, I'll have six all on the left cheek, please, Mr. Wright. He administered them. Harry smiled, shook, shook the teacher's hand, sat down. That was the end of it. So sometimes the the uh, you've got to be careful with the reinforcements because sometimes you might think it's punishment. It's like giving kids detention. Well, yeah, some might not like it and therefore it deters them. But others think, oh, I can stay at home another hour. The central eating on, I go home and it's going to be cold and you know, I'm going to have to listen to my brothers and sisters arguing about what we're going to watch on TV. So that's behaviours. Yes, I do think there's a lot in that. Students will usually work harder for a reward and those were like if you went into a classroom and said to all the kids i mean you know in, in a normal school where the kids are not super rich or whatever and you said if you pay attention in this lesson you will get 100 pound you'd suddenly find that kids had better attention and were learning better and that's because that they would be extrinsically motivated. However, as teachers, you can't go in and do that. All right, you can say, you know, if you answer the question, you get a chocolate. But even that now might be frowned upon in some environments. So, um, so we try to use intrinsic motivation, don't we? Now, that's another podcast, right? But the yeah. idea is if students perceive something as rewarding in some way, they are more likely to do that pattern so if they enjoy going into mark niven singh's classroom and they think he's very funny and he's intelligent about football ha 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 um <laughs> they um you know, they're more likely to respond to you asking them to do learning tasks and if they then find those learning tasks themselves in some way intrinsically motivating they feel a sense of self-esteem consciously unconsciously they're more likely to do it look in singapore you have the death penalty for drug trafficking right uh, and the fact is, I lived there for 25 years and I never had to worry about my daughters getting involved in drugs. If they got rid of the death penalty and you ended up getting, you know, kind of, um, you know, you you had to watch Manchester United for two games instead of a punishment. Mind you, that probably <laughs> bad, so it's not a good example. But you get the gist of that. So there's a lot of merit in that concept of reward and reinforcement. I do give that a lot more cred than constructivism as a, an approach. I know people like it's mechanistic, but um, <laughs> a lot of human behaviour is mechanistic. So I'm more of a behaviourist than a constructive. Okay. <laughs> okay. Which brings me to the, the next one, which is social learning. I think this has been quite a relatively newer phenomenon. Uh, and then, you know, uh, people who like just want to shove that idea around the head that you will learn by copying other people or having a social network of friends. Uh, what does that actually mean when we talk about uh, social learning as a learning model? Yeah, in fact, there's quite a bit to that. The Perhaps the most famous author is Bandura. Right. And what Bandura does is recognise that certain things affect the learning process and certainly the person's thinking and cognition, certainly the environment, and one important thing about the, learn the learning environment is social interaction. And now, if you're in an environment, for example, if you take your school, if most of the kids in the school 
are showing that they want to learn and they want to cooperate and the teachers are doing the same, then there is a tendency for um, identification and imitation of those role models. So um, social learning theory, yeah, is a relevant theory. It's not incompatible with behaviorism. Um, except that uh, social learning theory would not want to emphasise the mechanistic aspects of rewards and punishments. They would see it as a more fluid, socially constructed entity. So social learning theory would take aspects of phenomenology uh, and constructivism, and rightly so, there's nothing wrong with the notion that kids make meaning in their own ways perfectly fine but it's not a complete model of learning so whilst i uh, i've put it under a bit of a jurassic park as a learn as a complete learning theory it's not it's not something we want teachers to say oh as long as we work on the assumption that kids have to make meaning in their own way we've got a model of learning that's not that's not sufficient it's just like saying football as long as we kick the ball away from the penalty area that's all we need to do well mate, wimbledon nearly uh, made a <laughs> won the FA Cup with a similar model, but it was much more than that. And I actually quite like the Wimbledon side. So uh, if there's Wimbledon supporters listening, it was a great result <laughs> when you won the FA Cup. Um, anyway, uh, so social learning theory, the notion that learning in social contexts where there's good role models, yep. and there's peer learning and all those things. Yeah, um, social learning theory is a theory that I think um, you can look at and learn useful stuff that can be translated into effective teaching practices okay cool so uh which brings us to the one that i think is most uh aligned to our belief about evidence-based teaching uh and that's the idea of uh the science of learning uh and would it be fair to say that it's also known by its more popular name of uh, cognitivism would that be a um, fair, mm. fair uh, uh, assumption okay that's interesting really hmm. um cognitivism really is a focus on internal mental processes in other mm -hmm. words it gets students thinking and look at stages of development i mean in a sense piaget um jean piaget uh, was a cognitive what he did was to look at certain key things that students, student, uh, sorry, pupil, students, people, whatever, need to get to a certain level of maturation before they can do abstract thinking, you know, the age being around about 12-ish to 15. And also that information has to be uh, accommodated and, and assimilated into what the student already knows. So the focus of cognitivism is on the mind, you know, in the sense mm. cognition being, you know, the psychological word for inter for mental processes. However, uh, in itself, it does focus on that, but it's not the same as, um, if you like, a modern notion of cognitive psychology or yep. cognitive neuroscience, which, yes, it does look at internal processes and the relationship of external processes to the world. But what it actually does is to derive or is deriving a more universal, comprehensive model of learning. So, yeah, cognitivism, in a sense, took the focus from external agents, which in, in Skinner terms, it was very much what is the external stimulus to looking at how the mind itself processes that. So if you put together um, 
some aspects of cognitivism, mm -hmm. social learning theory and behaviorism, you start to get um, quite a good eclectic view of learning. What cognitive um, science today, the area that we worked at and that, you know, I, I killed myself writing those books, basically the cognitive um, science approach to learning or Basically, you could even call it the science of learning, which it gets called now, is about well, what do we know about the whole aspects of learning, both the internal processes, what things in the environment impact that, uh, and to try to derive what um, Daniel Willingham rightly refers to as not, not psychological theories, but a psychological theory that is pretty much evidence-based and then from that we extract things that teachers can do that will help the learning process so i think that's where we're heading to now um at, at front edge of thinking about pedagogy and that's becoming more and more prevalent and i notice more and more and more people now talking about things like cognitive load theory we did a podcast on that cognitive load theory is part yeah. of this bigger model of the science of learning or um cognitive psychology cognitive neuroscience takes what we know about learning and tries to connect it to aspects of the brain the truth of it is we don't really know enough about that relationship we don't need to know too much about how the brain works as teachers we need to know how the mind works and what impacts the mind. What we know is if students learn at the level of mind, it does get encoded in good neural networks in the brain. But basically, as a teacher, you're working with the mind. The, the brain will behave as a result of the outcomes of that interaction. All right. Okay. So that really now sets maybe the context for us to talk a little bit about uh, the cognitive science uh, because I came across this article um, and, uh, I, and I'm going to read it uh, as, as a I'm going to read the blurb okay so using cognitive science to boost learning yeah uh, strategies rooted in the science of learning can help students more effectively retain what they are learning okay so um, I, I will post the article uh, in the show notes so that people can read the article but I just want to dive straight into two uh, particular uh, strategies and then I want you to just link it to the work that we have been doing in terms of the principles of learning uh, and cognitive science in general, okay? So if you are ready for the challenge, the first yeah. one that the article talks about is retrieval practice, okay? So what exactly is retrieval practice and how is it related to the science of learning? And the last part would be is how can teachers, lecturers, trainers, whatever, uh, practice it in their classroom? Well, retrieval practice, as the word um, suggests, it's getting something back. Uh, if you've got a dog, we've both got dogs, right? And sometimes yep. if we are energetic enough, we take the dog out and we throw a ball. And uh, sometimes the dog will chase the ball and sometimes it brings it back and sometimes it lets you have it, right? Yep. And over time, if you reward the dog for bringing the ball back, use a bit of behaviorism and you reward the dog for dropping the ball so you can pick it up. <laughs> um, yeah, but, isn't, but isn't that a bit behaviorism there? Yeah, that, right, yeah. Just yeah. Well, yeah. Retrieval practice is 
is a perfect example of behaviorism, but also a perfect example of how human memory and the brain works. So let's do this. For example, if I'm now teaching you a word, I'll teach you something. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm going to teach you um, one word in um, Biasa Indonesian, and that word is bagus. Yep. Have you got that word, bagus? Yep. Right. Now, what I would that all retrieval practice would be at some future time, I say to you, what is bagus? Yep. Now, you could say, oh, bagus, right? But yeah. I would not only want you to um, be able to retrieve it, but to understand it as well. So I know you know what bagus is because you speak better Indonesian than I do. And it means good, right? Yep. So what we're saying is that in learning that if we get students to retrieve information that we've introduced to them in some way, that information could be through explanation and looking at it. The idea is to get the information from the external environment, you know, the learning situation, nicely encoded in their long-term memory. And what that means is when it's nicely encoded in long-term memory, it's also nicely neurologically wired in the brain. And what that means, it's likely to stay there as a consistent entity, but we want it not just to be memorized. We want it to be memorized with meaning and connected to other related words and concepts. That together is understanding. So to build that, you need to do plenty of retrieval practice, simply listening to something once, particularly in the afternoon when a lecturer shows 40 PowerPoint slides. It's <laughs> It's the retrieval practice is based on something we did, I think, previously to look at how human memory works. Human memory is limited in terms of what it can process in working memory. As we're speaking to each other now, we're in working memory. If I gave you 16 things to learn straight off the bat, you'd probably get between five and nine. That was the original formulation by Miller who looked at the capacity of working memory because ultimately information must get into long-term memory and neurologically wired for it to be retained consistently over time. The danger is that with a lot of teachers they'll say something and the students will um, will recognize it but they don't process it so that's why many teachers often complain oh i only taught that two weeks ago and the students have not retained it and that's because they've not processed it so retrieve what retrieval practice thinks is that when you teach one and it connects very much to cognitive load theory is that you teach key concepts in mean in in manageable chunks give them plenty of retrieval practice so it's in their long-term memory and neurologically wired in their brain. So what you encourage students to do is to do their own retrieval practice. For example, I say to students, look, if you're on the bus in the morning, rather than just be sitting there while listening to some, yeah, some piece of music that is damaging your brain cells, <laughs> I won't get involved in the subjectivity of modern music. Um, but... Um, the uh, the point is this: you can just sit there and say, right, okay, I want to practice my Indonesian. Right, uh, bagus, ah, that means good. The very process of retrieving that from long-term memory, pulling it into your consciousness, working memory, and checking that ah, bagus is good. 
when it goes back into long-term memory, it fires the connecting neurons in your brain. It releases an enzyme called myelin, and it makes those axons and dendrites more solid. So if you're, if you as a teacher, if we go on to the second part of the, the question, how do teachers use this? Well, first of all, is to let teach students how the memory systems work, how Working memory must process it. It's important to understand what you're learning, not just to memorize it, because if you don't understand it, it won't be useful, but to memorize, connect it to prior knowledge, and to be consciously thinking about how certain bits of knowledge are connected together. And when they build understanding is then to periodically bring it from long-term memory into working memory. And if they've forgotten a bit of it, check it out, put it back in so that's why retrieval practice it's a bit like there's another word deliberate practice which is basically the same thing in many respects but you do that with skills that uh, funny enough yesterday I was just playing darts with my um, daughter's partner and in the first game of killer it's a game of darts when you move around the ball he's actually quite good and he'd gone right round the ball won the game and I'd only got to um, number three <laughs> Because you've got to hit one, then two, then three, that kind of thing. Anybody who's interested in the game can look it up. But then I thought to myself, right, I'm not a good darts player. Never have been a good darts player. But I'm certainly, I have played much better than what I was at that time. And the reason is I haven't played darts for years. So I gradually kind of uh, thought about how I was throwing the dart, my posture, my relationship to the board. And within an hour and a half, I was getting to about 14, 15. So he was still beating me. But instead of him beating me by um, 20 to 3, it was like 20 to 12, 13 or 14. And this afternoon, I'm going to give him another game and see where I am. So, again, it's kind of practice thinking about how you're doing it, setting yourself a, a challenging goal. I at one stage said I want to get to five and I got to seven and then I'll set it at nine so the idea of practice with good feedback checking that you can do it making modifications those are key aspects of the science of learning and these are things that teachers should be doing make sure the students can recall it understand it and are confident with that and if they're learning a skill make sure they're getting the feedback they understand it and they then progress at manageable levels of attainment don't ask a, a student to go uh, from a basic level to an advanced level so it's that skillful building of understanding and skills over time these are things that teachers can do that is very empirically based in terms of the way we learn and unfortunately there's still teachers who are not fully utilizing that because they were taught constructivism and cognitivism and behaviorism as separate entities at teacher education college, and it, none of it really made any sense. And then they go in the classroom and think, well, hey, what do I do? Right. Um, so yeah. that's one big point there. Right. So I, I think you gave some. Good, good, good. Do it yeah. properly. Don't overdo it. Once people have got it and they know how to do it, try to get them to kind of self regulate themselves. Right. Okay. So, uh, you have talked about those students really taking making the effort to uh, 
do a lot of the retrieval practice. Uh, and I think one of the, the, the things that I'm reading here, and I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this. Uh, and what they say was, teachers experimented with challenging students in their virtual classrooms to retrieve information from earlier lessons through individual warm-up exercises and exit tickets. Each week, the team reconvened to share their experiences and reflect. Ultimately, the team landed on one common practice, and here it is. It's called mini-quizzes that will become the hallmark of classroom instruction. Uh, that will become the hallmark of classroom instruction. Now, several times per week, teachers will devote five minutes of class time to ask all students three to five questions on content learned previously. These no-state questions will not be graded, but will challenge students to recall what they learned last week, last month, or even earlier in the year. So, are mini-quizzes one of... Uh, do you think personally that mini-quizzes are a good strategy? Uh, and how then would you respond to someone who says they don't think it's a good strategy because if there's no marks to it, it's not high stakes, people really don't care. Okay, well, it's very simple answer to that. Mini quizzes are a little ex an exercise yep. in testing what students know and don't know and what their understanding is. So yeah, the difference between the mini quiz and the big quiz is just the number of items. It's very good. You can't every lesson try to test everything um, because one, it will get boring for the students. And secondly, you won't be moving on to new stuff. So the idea is to pick in these mini quizzes, what are the key concepts and the key bits of factual knowledge that students must have for the learning of that topic? So mini quizzes are great. And that's why a tool like Kahoot, when I was in Singapore with you, um, many lecturers were using Kahoot. Because with Kahoot, you could have a quiz of just three questions or you could have more. It didn't matter. But you were able to use that it was a bit of fun. You could do it at individuals or a group level or a pair level. You could make it into a bit of a game. It was a very good piece of technology for retrieval practice and ideal for a mini quiz. So mini quizzes are great because what you want to do is not just do retrieval practice of the previous lesson, but you want to be doing retrieval practice of stuff that you did maybe two months before. So to get that balance of doing the retrieval practice to check that they know topic A, even if you're doing topic C, that is keeping an old ethos of doing that retrieval practice. So students haven't got to get to the end of their um, course and start learning all the stuff over again. You want them to have most of it because once they've done retrieval practice four or five times and understand it, it will tend to stay longer and more stable in long-term memory. So even though they may forget bits of topic A, when you do your bits of retrieval practice much later on, they've still got a decent base. So you're not kind of having to do it all over again because you're hoping 70%, particularly the key concepts, are already there. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That's really yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, it does. It does. So okay. Thanks for that. But uh, so let's go on to the second uh strategy that they are advocating uh, and that is probing questions. Okay. Uh, and maybe just your thoughts on why or how does probing questions actually help with uh 
students uh, uh, in terms of boosting their learning and also to link it to retrieval if you can. Right. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Yeah. If when you say probing question, what mm. they are a probing question is an essential key question, right? Yep. And often focused very specifically to one of the key concepts. So Anthony Robbins, I think it was Anthony Robbins. I think we've mentioned him before. The super rich um, 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 performance enhancing coach who earns more than me and you, incidentally, Mark. Funny enough, uh, <laughs> maybe not as much as you. But what I'm saying is, he actually says is that basically, kind of uh, questions are essentially good thinking. The two are synonymous. That if you ask the student a key question, like it's a bit like you know, we're doing this podcast now. If you said to someone, "Give me one key." cognitive scientific principle that's right. important for learning that would be a probing question and you might say oh retrieval practice and i might say well what exactly is retrieval practice how does it work how does it build understanding how would you teach it they would be key questions but key probing questions so by having your quiz your mini quiz if you've got good questions focusing on the key concepts that works what you can then do is extend it and say right okay i've got a key question now i'm going to probe around it so a key question give me one important cognitive scientific principle that's a key question now mark says retrieval practice dennis and i say well what exactly is retrieval practice right how does it work um what's the relationship between working in long-term memory how might i now as a student use this to revise my exam that would be some very good probing questions right okay okay is that it, it, oh you probed me there you see that was a probing <laughs> question mark wasn't it and yeah. i gave you um i gave you a answer so if you were assessing my knowledge now on cognitive science in relation to that question you're going to give me an a, a plus correct that's right so but I'm, okay probing but, but, question that's when you get a pitchfork and you uh, hit someone over the head and say did you like that son i'm speaking company now right yeah, yeah but before i give you the a plus i'm just yeah. going to uh put you in uh, a bit of a pickle and that would be is yeah uh because i i would think that uh some uh teachers or lecturers or educators or trainers might need some help in the way they ask good probing questions because i think a lot of it uh, relies really on, for one of a better word, less deep questions. So, what would be, uh, how how would one try to hone their skill in asking good probing questions that helps students to be more effective learners in that sense? You've asked me another probing question, Mark, haven't you? That's right. There you go. Yeah. See, okay. I'm learning. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. we. <laughs> Yeah, that's nice. Uh, the thing is, the if you if you want students to think better, right? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. means you want to ask a question that gets them to analyze, compare, and contrast, evaluate those kind of things. Both teachers and students need to know what these things mean. So teachers will need to know that to ask a question like this to say to give students a video to watch or a graphic to look at or something and say, uh, "Can you comment on this?" Well. Yeah, that's, that's a bit of a dumb question. The student might look at it and say, oh, in the film, the dog was pretty, you know, but you're not interested in that. So 
asking very vague, open sort. Open questions are okay in certain contexts, but just to say to comment on something is very. It, it doesn't. If, if if I'm a student, I think well, comment on what? But if I I'm asked to say now we've looked at a, we've looked at a video and it's shown behaviorism, an outline of behaviorist theory, an outline of um, constructivist theory or, or whatever, and say, now, what's similar between these theories? What's different between these theories? So you've got to, um, students and teachers must understand that certain types of questions aren't going to be much more specific. And that's why we say to teachers, ask what and our questions rather than comment on this. Ah. Okay. So it's not that difficult. Once you understand, think critical thinking will revolve around the analysis question, the compare and contrast question, or an inference and interpretation or evaluation question. Then that's what you do. For example, if I'm if I want to probe, if I want to ask you questions about human memory, I would say, um, Mark, um, what's the relationship between working memory and long-term memory? If you do this in long-term memory, what are the consequences? for learning in working memory. And if I give you an overload of information in working memory, how does that impact the transfer of that information into long-term memory? So it's just understand, once you understand something um, and you do some deliberate practice yourself as a teacher, instead of just going on to students and saying, well, can you comment on this, Lisa? Or can you uh, comment on this, John? Well, it's, it, it's, it, it it's not specific, but if you say, Lisa's just said this, would you agree with this and on what basis? Or if you disagree, well, on what, what are you disagreeing on specifically about that relationship? So it's getting used to using those types of questions with students and giving them the pause time to think about it. Sometimes teachers ask a question. And remember, if you're asking a thinking question, a student has got to actually do a bit of thinking and say, hold on, do I know this? Have I got a response? Because if you don't give them time, they'll get used to not bothering to respond. That's right. And you've got to be able to think on your feet as a teacher. So if somebody says something, it's correct. You can say, yeah, that's correct. Can you, can other people in the class tell me what makes that correct? What's the important thing? Or do you have any questions that you'd like to ask? That kind of thing. So the ability of questions that engage the the thinking process rather than a, a kind of passive sitting there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The film was good. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah. I thought he was good in the film as opposed to, well, in this film, this happened. And that's really important for learning because. Mm. Does that make sense? Yep, it does. Okay, so I think let's let's wrap up this segment and this section. Uh, and as a as a reminder to everyone, uh, on the core principles of learning that you have developed, uh, you want to just quickly just, uh, do a quick uh, roundup about that and why it really addresses the uh, cognitive sciences. Yeah, uh, basically working in Singapore as we did together for many years and given that one of the things I did like about Singapore, it wasn't caught up at the system level with being 
constructive is or this or that or uh, everything must be problem-based learning even though different institutions may have chosen that and that was a kind of nice thing in Singapore there was a, a culture of pluralism let schools try out different things but gradually as I was leaving and a lot of the work that we were doing was to in a sense move away from it being you know, problem-based learning or constructivism or this and that but to extract from all these, if you like, models and pull it together into a universal theory of learning that was based on um, evidence of how the brain and the mind work. So we could have a, a general theory of learning. And certainly um, I was influenced by you know, quite a few writers as we were doing that kind of research. People like Daniel Willingham, who talked about cognitive scientific principles like activating prior knowledge, like retreat practice. These were things that Willingham was writing about, and he's quite famous for, well, in fact, very famous for, right? And then we were looking at research, for example, the work done by John Apple was saying, these methods tend to work best. And the work of Jeff Petty looked at John Atty's methods and said, well, yeah, yeah, teachers should be using methods, and these are practical examples. And what Jeff has done, most recent book is to connect Atty's methods to um, the cognitive scientific principles. Uh, what I did was to be doing that as part of a process anyway. So we now have a situation where that we can look at methods and what makes them work on what basis, connect those to cognitive scientific principles, and at the same time, increasingly refine those scientific principles. And that's what I did in my most recent book, um, is to pull all of that together. And that provides, instead of new teachers having to listen to all these different theories and ultimately not see the wood from the trees, in other words, to have cognitive overload, which is something we know is not terribly good for the brain, but to say, right, when I go into a classroom, it really helps if I find out, find out what they already know. Because if they already know it, I'm only bore them by reteaching the same stuff. You can do it quickly as a bit of retrieval practice. Certainly, that's good. But to, to spend three hours um, on something that's firm in their long-term memory would not be good practice. And we know if you get students to think, which the brain often doesn't like to do, it's a bit like exercise. We all like to be fit, but we don't want to go to the gym and pump iron. To get students to do things, because thinking will build understanding. And we know that if students get good feedback, so we are now developing with as very practical applications that experience can easily check that I'm doing I have words for them and they work for a reason and if we're training new teachers let's train them in things that work rather than say we'll read up on Watson and Pavlov and Vygotsky's zone of you know all these things but it doesn't come together into a unified way in which you can plan lessons effectively and teach lessons effectively so I see science approach evidence-based teaching it's the same thing evidence-based creative teaching that we involved was simply to take evidence-based teaching and say well hold on what would be creative teaching how can you do things that are 
essentially evidence-based, but involve a creative process. So that's why I refer to it as the, the gold standard of teaching. So if you can teach from an evidence-based creative teaching point of view consistently, you're the Roger Federer, maybe that's getting a bit dated, or is it now, um, uh, or Serena Williams of, of education, because the very best tennis players can simply adapt to any environment and still play. They can play well on clay, well on hard court, well on um, grass. So uh, a very creative evidence-based teacher is able to probably teach in most context and be able to customize the pedagogy and the way it's delivered and the relationships with students right. so that's it that's your summary all right cool okay thanks for so much for that uh lots to unpack and i hope uh, our listeners enjoy that one so let's move on to part two our uh, interesting thing or something that we found inspiring over the week what's yours then well I, every week i seem to say the same thing um what have I found inspiring this week is um, the, the only thing I'm finding inspiring is that a lot of my contacts in Singapore still want to keep in touch with me and, and do research <laughs> with me. So I'm inspired by that. Right. Okay. So for me, uh, I'm going to share a quick little tool. Uh, last week, I didn't share one. This week is something that I found quite interesting. Uh, not so much an edutech tool, uh, but I think increasingly most of us are... Uh, uh, most of us have will will create some form of a web page or HTML document uh, that would have quite a number of links that we may want our students to look through. Now, what this little tool does is uh, it's called Check My Link. Now, Check My Links is a link checker that crawls through your page and looks for broken links. Okay, so uh, when you are when you are putting a whole lot of links. Uh, or when you're trying to insert links, would it be handy to be able to quickly check that all the links on your page are working? And this is where the checker comes in for you. So you don't even have to check it manually one by one. So for those of us or who, uh, you know, uh, teachers, uh, again, trainers, educators, who are compiling HTML documents and with web links for our students to go through, this might be a little nifty tool that you may find useful so that it saves you some time and effort as you compile your resources. So once again, I will also put this tool, uh, the link to the tool where you can download it. It's a Chrome extension, uh, so it's quite nifty. You don't have to download any other programs. Uh, and I'll put it in the show notes so that you can actually uh, look at it and we can and you can use it as you see fit. Okay, so that's the little nifty tool of the week for you. So before we end, uh, what's the plan for this week then for yourself? Well, basically, um, it, it, it's a nice week really because I, um, I'm catching up with my daughters who I've not and their partners who I've not seen since Christmas. And um, the sun is coming out and um, they will... One that has come back and the other one's on their way. And we will probably have, we'll go to my favourite Indian restaurant, one of my favourite Indian restaurants in the world. I won't name it because they're not paying me. I'm just joking. Um, but, uh, and we'll have a curry. In fact, we go for a Thai meal tonight because I like Thai food. And this is an authentic Thai restaurant. And um, uh, which often you go to a Thai restaurant and it's kind of... Um, it's cobbled together, so to speak. But this is the real good stuff. Obviously, I'm not comparing it with the best places in Thailand, but it's good. And then a curry tomorrow night. Um, 
and then um, another night where we're all thinking what we're going to do. And then I go back to Jersey on Saturday morning. In between that, I'm doing a podcast. I've got a Zoom session uh, t- tomorrow with um, somebody, and um, I've just submitted an article to, to, to the local paper back in Jersey. So I'm doing little bits of work in between that. So it's it's good. Right. Okay. Interesting stuff. So, uh, that ends this week's episode. If you would like to get in touch with us to give us some feedback, or even if you would like to be on the podcast, we would love to have you. Uh, you can write to us uh, at evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. Once again, it is evidencebasedcreativeteaching at gmail.com. We look forward to listening, or we look forward to hearing from you and more importantly please do like and share this episode uh, to your teacher friends or to someone whom you think may find this useful so that's another episode done and dusted uh it's time for dinner and it's time for lunch for you right then yeah you're on the biscuit mate all right okay (laughs) that's not what you're gonna eat for lunch i'm sure Right. Okay. So thank you, Dennis. Uh, We will see you and talk to you again next week. Take care, everyone, and bye-bye. And goodbye from me.